Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to More Than Amused podcast, a podcast all about women and the arts hosted by Stani and Sadie. Join us as we explore what it's like being a female artist, examine modern day problems, and educate ourselves and you on important and forgotten female artists of the past. Hey everyone, it's just Sadie here today. I just wanted to tell you what exactly we're doing here with this bonus episode. So if you're following us, you'll realize that this week we did not have a normally scheduled episode. We did have our July book of the month though. So if you haven't listened to that, go check it out. It was More Than Amused. That was the book that we read and it was really amazing. And we had, I think, a pretty cool discussion about it. But on our Instagram this week, We did different series just on our Instagram TV about the Olympics and different ways that women artists have contributed to the Olympics. Maybe you're watching the Olympics currently. I have been a little bit. It's been really cool to watch. But anyways, so that's what this is. It's not going to be a normally structured episode because you're just going to be listening to Stani and I basically just take turns talking about different topics. But very first Bristani is going to talk about fashion design Olympics. Then she'll talk about Deborah Sussman. And then I'll talk a little bit about Leanne Rhymes and the chicks and about their performances that they did in the 2002 Salt Lake City Winter Olympics, which is also where Stani and I are from. So hope you enjoy this bonus episode. You'll learn a little bit more about how women have contributed to the Olympics as artists, like I mentioned. And yeah, like I said, it's a little bit different because we're just going to kind of transition from one topic to the other but if you do want to go check those out on instagram you definitely can if you don't know our instagram it's just more than amused podcast so enjoy this little bonus episode hope you enjoy learning a little bit more about women and how they've been involved in the olympics It's the Olympics. Maybe you're watching, maybe you're not. Maybe sports aren't your thing. Um, Arts are a lot more involved in the Olympics than people think, but it's kind of more of that behind the scenes. So I figured it would be cool this week to take a chance and look at some of those art industries that go behind the making of the Olympics and create such an epic event. So first off, let's talk about Bonnie Cashin and the 1956 Melbourne Summer Olympic Games. Um, Before we get to that Olympics, though, let's rewind and talk about who Bonnie Cashin is. So, Bonnie Cashin was born in Oakland, California in 1908. Her father was a photographer and inventor, and her mother actually ended up opening a custom dress shop and was a dressmaker that helped really pike an interest in fashion design in Bonnie at a very, very young age. Um, Bonnie would go on to 
uh, graduate from high school and immediately start designing costumes for Hollywood, for movies, theater, everything. And she got really, really good at it. And later on in 1949, she went back to New York and with all this experience under her belt, um, quite a good reputation for what she had done, she decided to try a hand at more traditional fashion design and created her first ready-to-wear collection under her own name. Now, this collection did amazing. Like, it was highly, highly acclaimed. She won a prestigious Cody Award and a Neiman Marcus Fashion Award, and so she opened her own business called Bonnie Cashin Designs in 1951. And this is kind of when her real legacy began. Um, There was a woman, um, Dorothy Shaver, in 1932, who was the first American woman to head a multi-million dollar company which was Lord and Taylor. Um, And what she was trying to do was create like this new American look because you have to realize that uh, around this time period, a lot of things were changing. Christian Dior in Paris in 1947 was trying to propel fashion forward and they were trying to create that same new look that everyone was looking for, but it was extremely impractical extremely and the problem was is that while men had gone away to war the women had been working and so a lot of the things they they used to wear before just weren't practical anymore um women had been wearing coveralls they were in pants and then christian dior collection was trying to take them back to like corsets and structured clothing and nipped in waists and Um, they wanted to be feminine. They wanted to be pretty like women wanted to, but these clothes just weren't practical for the kind of work that women were doing anymore. They wanted to be comfortable. And this is kind of where sportswear came into existence because they needed something that worked for multiple different scenarios, something that you could wear to work and then wear to the park with your kid and then do the dishes in like something that worked for everything. And this is where she really began to shine. Um, sportswear was comfortable, laid back, and really represented the middle class. And this is something that Cashin specialized in. One of the things that's insane to think about is that before this time period, people wore sets. Like you would buy your shirt, your skirt, your jacket all in a set like it would all come together like pre-made outfits and Bonnie Cashin created this idea of separates so like picking out a separate jacket skirt and blouse and wearing them in different pieces and like mixing and matching in layers like that was something that's so fundamental to how we dress now but that wasn't necessarily that wasn't at all what people were dressing before so some of bonnie cashin's most fundamental and innovative designs included um the use of grommets in place of buttons which helped be more accessible for different things and also made it so buttons didn't have to constantly be replaced Um, She also was one of the first designers who made ponchos for women that were actually, like, fashionable instead of, like, 
really gross and as she explained didn't look like a horse should wear them um she also put boots with tweed suits um and helped create like different accessories that matched all of her clothing um she also had this like famous pocketbook pocket with a snap closing clothing that would go in almost all of her clothing so you could fit your wallet in your clothing um she also introduced canvas raincoats in 1952 which apparently hadn't been done before as well as industrial zippers jumpsuits and suede italian dresses with fringe um she also created handbags for Coach, gloves for Crescendo Superb, and rainwear for Mordella, um, did a ton of knitwear. Um, she also was the inventor of a roomy turtleneck that didn't require a zipper to get over your head. And before that time, all of the turtlenecks required a zipper so that you could actually fit it over the top of your head. But those wide turtlenecks that we all wear now are due to Bonnie Cashin. Um, she also, she had a dog leash skirt and it was because she was sick and tired of holding her skirt up, going up the steps in her country home. And so she attached a small brass ring near the bottom to a small brass clasp at the waistline so she could pull it up and then walk up the steps without having to reach down and lift up her skirt. She had some really interesting jobs throughout her lifetime, including working with the armed forces in World War II to design uniforms for the women. Um, she didn't really enjoy it a ton because of the restrictions of fabrics and trim. Um, she also designed costumes in Hollywood for a very long time and then would go on to be one of, well, to design the first um flight attendant uniforms for American Airlines. She also designed the women's Olympic uniforms for the 1956 Melbourne Summer Olympic Games. Now, watching the Olympics now, the uniforms that they wear for opening ceremonies for their different sport events and even like their loungewear nowadays is like all extremely uniform and designed and they have a ton of different sponsors and brands and everything who pitch into this for every country. However, that didn't used to be a thing. Um, outfitting the Olympics wasn't a big deal. They usually just wore like business attire. However, in the 1956 Winter Olympics taking place in Melbourne, Australia, there was an article that came out beforehand and said the fashion industry will be providing wardrobes for Olympic teams. The fashion industry was basically going to debut a complete spectator and travel package from all of these extremely notable American designers and businesses to each member of the games. Um, this uniform ended up giving the American team an edge in the competition because they looked so put together. And Bonnie Cashin was in charge of the female athlete uniform for the Olympics. And this was the first ever Olympic uniform ever created. So that's a very big deal. Um, she had a perv raid uniform featuring the Olympic patch and then um, red leather pumps, an undergarments package, um, and then the men also had a jacket, shorts, 
socks and tailored pajamas. Um, and this was her creation, this like wool jersey coat for travel and it has like her signature pockets. Um, I have a really low res photo that I'll post, but she designed this first uniform and this made a huge impact on the Olympic games. Like we've already talked about the impact she had on fashion, but this modern uniform package, um, created this licensing opportunity for the entire United States Olympic committee and for every country that was competing. And ever since then, fashion has been a big deal in the Olympics People actually send out bids to try and win the Olympic fashion design contracts. In the 1984 Olympics, Levi's actually won the bid and the Olympic uh, team members spent most of the week dressed in denim. (laughs) And um, Adidas has also done a lot of Olympic fashion, including 1988 games and um, JCPenney and Reebok did some as well. And this continues in other countries as well with um, like Armani continues to do the Italian Olympic Games, including this year's. So there's just this whole other world of like sportswear and fashion and uniforms and the Olympics that we all owe to this very influential and very amazing woman, Bonnie Cashin, who none of us know enough about. Welcome back. And we are once again talking about another Olympic artist who had a major impact on the Olympics during that time and the future of an industry. Um, this is kind of a personal favorite of mine because we get to talk about Deborah Sussman, who is a graphic designer and who I actually already had the pleasure of researching for my senior project. So I wrote a whole chapter on her um, and this whole role within the Olympics. And she's actually the one who kind of sparked this idea of this little mini series that we're doing. So kind of fun that I get to talk about her again. Um, so Deborah Sussman is basically a pioneer of environmental design, which is a whole area of graphic design. But this is a lot of like wayfinding, like signs in cities, maps, and especially played a huge role in the Olympics. But before we talk about that, we're going to rewind and talk about Deborah Sussman herself. So, Deborah Sussman was born in Brooklyn, New York on May 26th in 1931, and her father was actually a very skilled commercial artist, and her mother was a linguist. And because she was in New York City, and her parents were first-generation Europeans, they really wanted her to be able to experience the culture and the history that was available in New York. So she did. She went to a ton of classes and museums. She actually studied for a short time at Black Mountain College, which is like a huge privilege. And then um, when she went to college, she decided to study painting and the performing arts. So it kind of shows how like established she was within the arts, even from a very young age. Um, However, when she got to college, even though she loved her program, she didn't really enjoy acting 
and throughout her studies there kind of realized that she didn't really want to be an actress. Um, However, she had this opportunity to kind of explore some other programs and she really became infatuated with the idea of design. And so she transferred to the Institute of Design, which was also known as the New Baja School. And while there, got to study from some of the most influential designers and creators of her time and got her degree in graphic design there. Um, also, while there, she met Charles and Ray Eames, who are um, most notably known for like their furniture design and creation. Um, if you've been to Ikea and you've seen the Eames chair, or if you Google it, you probably recognize it. That is a invention of Charles and Ray Eames. It's very mid-century modern, was extremely popular then and still continues to be today. And um, Sussman was like very impacted by this work of Ray and Charles Eames, saying that the work that they'd done made the ordinary extraordinary and kind of fell even more in love with design and everything to do with it. Um, This would lead to a summer internship at the Eames office where she took over all of their like print materials, museum exhibits, films, and showrooms for all of their furniture. And then um, she also got to do like a lot of really unique independent projects like traveling to Mexico to help film a folk culture documentary on the Day of the Dead and a bunch of other stuff. Um, She ended up studying in Germany for a short time and looked at different architecture, traveled to Paris and Milan, um, worked in Paris for a while for an apartment store, and then finally returned to New York City in 1961, freelancing for a short time before returning to Los Angeles again to work with Charles Eames on an exhibit for IBM, which is a huge tech company. So she had this huge period of growth, exploration, and then returned back to Los Angeles. One of the things that was happening in design in Los Angeles right now was the California New Wave movement. And it was kind of controversial, as most new movements in art tend to be, Um, For a very long time, Swiss design had dominated the graphic design industry, which is like, if you know anything about design, it's like Helvetica, black and white, white space, very like structured. And California New Wave was very playful, very um, destructive, like think very 80s and 90s design. Basically what became popular is what was not popular yet and was starting And even though she grew up in New York City because of her college in L.A. um, and just the way the world was headed, she became very well known for her California New Wave style and um, also for projects she began to work on with her husband uh, that they considered urban branding. So they would create city identities for like Philadelphia and Santa Monica. So like I talked about um, city signs like the welcome to this and the street signs maps for the city itself and anything regarding the city they've come up with this like own brand identity for each place so when the 
a United States and specifically Los Angeles won the Olympic bid for the 1984 Olympics, they needed someone with a very good reputation to help create this whole new environment for the Olympic Games. Um, And that's something that maybe if you don't know about the Olympics, you don't know that like most people don't have giant stadiums that'll fit everyone (laughs) and full on Olympic size pools and track fields and everything like all decked out and ready Um, the minute they win an Olympic bid, they have to take their time to develop all of it. And that's something that we've seen in Utah since we live here. And we had the Olympics here in 2002, Um, kind of the process that they went into, the money that's spent, and the fact that we still have those structures today because of how much time and money they spent on them. So it takes a lot of design as well. And before Sussman was involved, the Olympic design was like a red and white blue star in motion that was actually considered extremely inappropriate because it had this like nationalistic expression of the United States and like it wasn't very popular. And I mean, so basic, like red, white and blue stars. Come on. And it's an international Olympics game. So they don't want something that only represents the United States. So because of this, Sussman and her committee was like, hey, we live in Los Angeles, and this is where the Olympic Games are taking place. This is Southern California. We've got the culture of Mexico, Japan, Indonesia, India. We have all of these people and these colors, and we should create like a beautiful, colorful environment like L.A. is for the Olympics, like we should represent our city. And so they did. They did like sculptural iconography. So each sport had a little icon, which they've actually done with the Tokyo Olympics this year again as well. So that's kind of fun to see. They also did like bunting and balloons and vivid hues. They used tons of really bright colors like hot magenta, vermilion, aqua, chrome, yellow, orange and they turned the logo more into this like LA 84 in a square with a star in the A and then also one thing that she did is she created like pop-up towers and gateways and upcycled tents and nylon banners and canopies and these bright colors that created these whole new like sculptural structures that uh, surrounded the stadiums and were around the gateways and became like this whole new environment for the Olympics, turning them into this bright, colorful, beautiful place. And she actually got like highly acclaimed responses from everyone. Um, People wrote about her work in architecture magazines saying that although environmental graphic design started as architectural signage, hence graphics, a flat discipline turned out to be inadequate in a round world. An exhibition, for example, is more than a book on a wall or an arrangement of artifacts under glass. It's the engagement of people as they move through space. Sussman carries this engagement into stores and other public spaces and into designed events, a contextual approach that brought the company international renown with the 1984 Summer Olympics. This work won Time Magazine's award for Best of the Decade 
And also, people wrote about it saying, the graphical elements of the Olympics epitomized a carnivalesque modernity and placed the work in the new wave design movement. So not only was this like amazing because everyone was talking about how beautiful and wonderful the Olympics were and how well they represented LA, it also helped move forward the idea of environmental architecture as a whole. And Sussman would go on to work on Disney World, Disneyland, and Euro Disney, and also help create these environments of design that, like they said, weren't two-dimensional, just weren't posters and street signs, but more than that were these like 3D experiences within the world to help make an environment more of an environment for the person within it. And people would go on to say that her work was like urban poetry, um, which is an amazing accomplishment, and I'm sure she really appreciated all of that. So yeah, that is Deborah Sussman and her impact on not only the LA 84 Olympics, but the rest of the history of, I'm sure, Olympic design and environmental design as a whole. Hey everybody, today we are talking about music and how music has just played an amazing role in the Olympics and more importantly, especially for our podcast, how women in music have made a huge contribution to the Olympic ceremonies. So music has always had a very important role in the Olympic Games. The competition has a rich history of official songs, orchestras, and just amazing things in their opening and closing ceremonies. The, I mean, the world's most popular musicians, including Stevie Wonder, the Spice Girls, they've all performed at the closing ceremonies, but many of the best Olympic musical performances have come from the event's opening ceremonies. Um, one of the most popular opening ceremony performances was Etta Jane's version of When the Saints Go Marching In, which she delivered in 1984 that was accompanied by a huge gospel choir. But today, what we're specifically talking about is the 2002 Winter Olympics that were in Salt Lake City, Utah. And also, that's where Stani and I are from, so that's pretty cool. But there are two amazing women who performed in these, in this, in these opening ceremonies. And that's the Chicks, which is, of course, formerly known as the Dixie Chicks, and Leon, Leanne Rimes. Leanne Rimes actually sang the theme of the Olympics for that year. And I was, I was like so impressed when I real when I learned this but she was just 20 years old when she made this performance I had no idea that she was that young and it made me realize that I don't really know a lot about Leanne Rimes hadn't realized that she'd been doing this for so long um so I think I need to go check her out but for this performance apparently she wore a beautiful long winter coat she was surrounded by hundreds of children that were just holding brightly lit lanterns and the song was called light the fire within and was written by Linda Thompson and David Foster which by the way in the article that I found about it (laughs) how it explained it it said that the song was written by Elvis's ex Linda Thompson and legendary musician David Foster which is a totally separate discussion that Linda Thompson was known for being an ex of Elvis whereas of course they gave the title of legendary musician to the man in the partnership but it's fine 
Moving on. In 2018, Leanne actually made an Instagram post about this experience, and she said, in honor of the Winter Olympics, I'm throwing it back to 2002 when I had the honor of opening the Winter Olympics in Salt Lake City. It was an incredibly inspiring experience, and these kids were all my heroes. It was so cold, and we were all performing on ice. They were all such troopers. This performance will forever be one of the most incredible experiences I've had as an artist. I still cry watching it. Blessings to all the competitors and huge congrats to all the medal winners. So like I mentioned, that was an Instagram post from 2018, um, right before the 2018 winter. And yeah, that's Leanne Rhymes and the Dixie Chicks. Truly amazing. I would recommend it to anyone. Just go watch that. It's so inspiring. The second amazing performance of that night was from the Chicks. Apparently, they were the showstopper of the event, and they performed a version of Ready to Run while dressed in like hats, scarves, and thick winter coats, and it was just at those opening ceremonies. Apparently, three billion people were watching worldwide, which is insane, but the Chicks lead singer, Natalie Maines, apparently rallied the crowd in the Rice Eccles Stadium, which is Salt Lake City. I've been there with the cry of y'all ready and all the skaters were dressed in pioneer skirts, cowboy hats, and they reenacted this journey of going west by the Mormon pioneers. Apparently, the drummer of the Chicks said this place rocks, which if you know anything about Utah history, maybe you do, maybe you don't. When Brigham Young got to Utah, he apparently said, this is the place. So I thought it was cool. I don't know if he did that on purpose or not, but I think there's that funny little play on the situation that he said, this place rocks when that's kind of a, you know, legendary thing in Utah culture or Utah folk folklore, whatever. Anyways, it's an amazing performance. I actually went and watched those two people two people perform it was super cool to see and it's so amazing just to like realize how many different ways artists are involved in the olympics i think in my head i've like always just imagined it to be you know it's for athletes and of course that's the main focus and that is like their opportunity to be highlighted but it's so cool how different women and different artists have been highlighted and so yeah honestly go watch these performances leanne rhymes was amazing and the chicks, it's so funny just because all the other performers are just dressed as pioneers. I don't, it just seems so funny to me that they really committed to that, but it was amazing. So go watch it. And yeah, that's Leanne Rhymes and the Dixie Chicks. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed the Olympic music you know, had to go all out for this bonus episode. And also hope you enjoyed learning a little bit more about how women have contributed to the Olympics. Um, but we'll be back on Monday with a artist and a normally normal episode. This week's been a little bit different for us, but still wanted to give you guys some content. So hope you enjoyed it. And we'll see you back here on Monday with more than a muse. Have a good weekend. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.